0: Hello and welcome to In Person with Paul on Crime Time FM. I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. And here's where I interview authors about their latest novels. My guest today is Graham Hurley, a writer with nearly 50 books to his name, from non-fiction to crime fiction, and most recently the Spoils of War series. The latest, The Blood of Others, was published last month. And we're releasing this podcast on the 19th of August, which is the 81st anniversary of Operation Jubilee. A disastrous raid on the French coast near Dieppe, organized by Mountbatten and combined operations, and carried out by Canadian forces. That catastrophe has long haunted Hurley and has inspired this novel. Unlike all of the spoils of war novels, The Blood of Others is a moving war story that lays bare a tragedy and captures something of the wider context of the Dieppe landing. We all think we know the Second World War, but Hurley's detailed and nuanced retelling of events offers an insight that deepens our understanding, possibly contradicting what we think we know, but it certainly has us questioning the narrative we've grown up with. It's a war story, a spy novel, a political thriller, and it reflects on the greater crimes mankind commits. Intriguingly, Hurley gives us the German and Russian perspectives, as well as the British, Canadian and American views. Hurley is as eloquent chatting about the novel as he is on the page, So this is a truly fascinating interview, and I really hope you enjoy it. I apologise for the fact that the sound quality is not as good as it usually is on this recording. That's because the first device failed, so we're relying on a backup recording that I always take. I hope it won't spoil your enjoyment too much, and it absolutely is worth it, so... I start by asking Hurley about his early inspiration and the war stories he grew up on. Hello, and welcome to Crime Time FM, Graham. Ah,
1: pleasure
0: to be here. Ah, it's lovely to have you. We're going to be talking about um, the latest in the Spoils of War series, The Blood of Others, which is number eight in the series, I think. And you've written 40 other books, fiction and non-fiction, before that. But let's start with something about your early passion for reading and writing. Tell us a little bit about that, please.
1: Well, I... I always put it in these terms. I've been cursed or uncursed by good luck all all my life. And the the first uh, real stroke of good luck was the fact that I grew up in a house, post-war house, without a television. And we didn't have a television until uh, the 1966 World Cup final came along. Right. And in those intervening years, especially in the winter, um, I would, uh, on those long, you know, dark winter nights, I always trotter upstairs after after an early dinner with an full of books. And I read and I read and I read. And the second stroke of luck, I guess, is that I'd collided as a young reader with that torrent, that breaking wave of um, books, fiction and non-fiction that came out of the Second World War. So you're, you're dealing with books like, I don't know, The Cruel Sea, Nicholas Montserrat. You're dealing with books like um, Above Us, The Waves, or Reach for the Sky, Dan Busters, all that. And 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 I absolutely, I was transfixed by that war. My dad had been in the RAS. He'd been a navigator in the bow fighter. We had a good war. My mum was under the bombs in London. She had her own stories to tell. And uh, as a post-war baby, and then growing up during the fifties, with access to all this stuff. Looking back, I think it it, it certainly shaped
0: my taste in by early taste reading, but it right. all, also gave me an appetite to write. You know what, there's something very interesting about that because I've heard something you said before to another interviewer about um, the influence of those books by Montserrat and Maclean and Innis and so on, and it yeah. was that um, they managed to convey the story, and perhaps even in a way that talking directly to people who are involved doesn't quite do it. Can you explain what you mean by that?
1: Yes, I, I, I think I can. If you take... If you take um, uh, I, th- I think the first book by Elizabeth Maclean, which is HMS Ulysses. Right. Now Maclean has been on the, uh, the the Arctic convoys, the convoys that went to Murmansk, mm. and particularly during during the winter. Uh, that that was uh, the war at its cruelest. So you were fighting two enemies. You were fighting the weather above all, and you were fighting when they could get airborne, the Germans, um, and 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 obviously the U boat threat. And th- th- that experience, those voyages, that theatre of war, marked uh, McLean deeply. And he, he was a
2: young guy, and he wanted to write. And that first book, I remember reading, and I
1: couldn't put it down. And it carried a kind of authenticity um, about just how weary, really, how, how uh, you go through this, this, this grinding mill day after day after day the near certainty that at some point you're
3: going to come to a sticky end. Yeah, it's
0: very interesting, that. But then when you left college, and you had written by that time, you'd written yourself some novels, but at that point you went into TV and into documentaries. That's true,
1: yeah. Yeah, by the time I, I, left, uh, I left university, I, I'd written, I'm just trying to tally
2: them out, I think it's about eight or nine, of right. the worst novels, <laughs> um, and they were mercifully unpublished, which is important. But, but equally important is the fact that looking back, I realized that i have done a kind of apprenticeship. Right. Um, and I've learned uh, how difficult language can be, what a difficult medium it can be, how challenging it can be. And when you get to the, 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 the nuts and bolts of trying to write a, a book that isn't about yourself, hmm. and, and believe me, I started at 14, and not very much
0: has happened to most 14. <laughs> not, so, not really, no. though. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I, I,
1: uh, force majeure, almost, I, I began to have to uh, get inside the heads of others. Uh, and you, you may not believe this, Paul, but uh, in those days, the only way to get around if you hadn't got much money, and most of us didn't have much money, was hitchhiking. Yeah, um, right. If you hitchhiked, the minute that the, the, the list, the potential list, stopped at the, at the roadside, you entered a kind of unspoken. Uh, contract and that and that meant you 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 had to partake in conversation. You had to talk, but above all, you had to listen because you'd be amazed at how many drivers have, have a great deal to get off their chest. Right.
4: and that was a, a huge learning curve.
1: And 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 I'm very very curious about other people. I always
4: have been. Mm. I still am. And mostly, I
2: don't hitchhike anymore. But, um, <laughs> but those hitchhiking days set me up. I now realise.
1: Um, uh, to, to have the kind of appetite, I
3: guess the Pulse the, the word is curiosity about what it is to be someone else. I
0: assume that when you work then, because I think writers need that experience, you know, to, to put into writing when you're writing later on. So I suppose that whole period of working in documentaries is a massive part of, of the learning curve as well for writing. I mean, you've got the storytelling. You've got sometimes the topics which are the same, but it must be other, re- you know, things like research and that and talking to people that, that are also valuable when you become a novelist. No, that's
1: true. Uh, I mean, I was I in telly for um, about 20 years, in fact, 20 years, two decades, and I must have made over 100 documentaries. And I loved it. I mean, I absolutely loved it. I was always aware at the very back of my mind that I was kind of
3: cheating on my, well I grandly termed to myself my lifelong mission which was to get into print. Right. Um, But
1: but compared to writing books, which is difficult, Uh, I mean it's hugely enjoyable
3: and you wouldn't do it if it wasn't. Hmm. But um, uh, uh, compared to that,
1: TV was a hot bath. I I mean you got very well paid. Uh, I was lucky enough to be in television when the budgets were enormous. Um, I worked for ITV. Uh, the advertising revenues are very boring. Right, yes. Uh, you didn't have a license to sell too often, but you could take real risks. And I, I got, got to know that that sort of three-part three uh, discipline of making documentaries. And the first part, which is by far the most interesting part, is research. is identifying the story, uh, identifying the people that are going to make it happen on screen, getting alongside them, doing the novelist thing winning their trust, clambering into their hearts and their heads, trying to work out, as I've said before, what it's like for them, and then doing the whole performance again once you become friends, once they trust you, um, uh, in terms of, of getting stuff down. First of all, on cellular, we used, to, we used to film on, on, on 16mm, yeah, and, right. on, on uh, and, and then on video. And then, of course, comes post-production, etc. But going back to the research... Uh, and I still do it. I still meet people. still meet people on buses, uh, in bus queues, in the supermarket, wherever. Uh, I do lots of public speaking, uh, and I meet people through there. And, and the great thing is, if you have enough patience, if you still know how to listen, which I, I suspect is becoming a, a dying art,
2: hmm. then there, there are all
1: kinds of things that you can, you can find out about, not just the individual, but about the world we live in.
0: Yeah, it's true. You know what? Funny enough, you just reminded me of something when you said that earlier, because you talked about transport and hitchhiking and that. And I remember my grandmother said that the first time she came down from Aberdeen to London, she came on a cattle boat and it took three days. (laughs) But, you know, it just that was a random thing. We were talking about all sorts of topics. Of course, we always did. She was a big Sherlock Holmes fan for a start. But that just came out of nowhere. You know, it was just one of those random things that she mentioned. And it's such a fascinating detail. Back to your writing then, Um, so then you got commissioned by ITV to do a six-parter and that became the Rules of Engagement, which became the first novel, and that was 1990. And you've been a full-time writer for the last 30 years then? Yeah, at the the end of the 80s, I was
1: working for a a, a company called TVS Television South, and um, they lost the franchise in
2: 1990. And uh, because we we, we lacked
1: union protection by that time, thanks to Sancher, and we all back, there were 1,400 of us. Um, and that was the bad news to be sacked. But the good news was that they gave, gave us a, a year's money. Uh, and I was a producer director. was on good money. That gave right. me a bit of a buffer. And I remember having the, the conversation with my lovely wife, Lynn. Uh, you know, a month of crisis, we always go to the pub. Uh, and I sat her down. I said, something terrible happened. And, and I told her. And she said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I've got four books on the shelf. And I have
4: four books on the shelf by then. Hmm. These are one-off for different
3: life, if, if you agree the way we should go, because I, you know, I could try and stay in TV yes, with right. an
1: independent producer, which a lot of my mates have done, but it, it's a different world now. Or
2: we can lash together uh, in a wonky old raft and, and, and drift off down the river of fiction and see where it takes us. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and that's what we did, better. Um, yeah. And I've written
1: Yes. Your last sales figures, and there is no sentiment in, in UK publishing or US publishing or Euro publishing or whatever.
0: You've obviously developed a readership over those years because you're right. I mean, my little knowledge of it is that publishing is very much business and it's more business than it ever was. But but you've always had that audience. So let's look specifically at the spoils of war and and the blood of others, which is the latest novel, as we said in the series. I'm curious about how it comes together, and I think you start to explain that in relation to the the documentaries. There, it's sort of um, I'm wondering about how a topic or an area starts you off and, you know, how the research develops into the story that you want to tell. Can you give us a yeah, little I idea think, of that? Yeah, yeah I, think, I think in a sense, Paul, we go back to the TV so hmm. One of the things I did when I, uh, I, I established a presence in documentaries, I put it pompously that way, is that I, I
4: made a corner for myself in anniversary uh, documentaries tied to war, mm-hmm. and particularly the Second World War, Yeah, right. I understand. And I
1: started to make um, uh, big one-hour documentaries for the network. Um, I'll give you two examples. One was a, a
4: documentary called Comrades in Arms, mm. which, which was uh, a slightly revisionist account
1: of, of the retreat of Dunkirk in, in May, June 1940.
4: Right. Uh, and basically it was
1: about the fall, fall falling out between the French and the Brits. And it was a very different Dunkirk than the one you
3: normally hear about. Yes, here. right. Um, and it-
1: which come with trying to sustain the supply chain across the
4: channel, et cetera. None of that existed. Mm-hmm. And so he had to be placated. And it was Louis Mountbatten who
2: was promoted to rear admiral uh, in, in a, a new organisation called Combined
1: Operations who came up with the with cunning wings. And the cunning wings was to, to descend on the channel port for 24 hours or 12 hours really of away-day violence to achieve a landing Put a, a, de- a decent number of, 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 of troops on the beaches, create havoc, kill lots of Germans, blow up stuff, retreat back onto the boats and go home. That was basically um, the the, uh, the challenge. Right. The heavy lifting fell to six thousand Canadians who had yet to who, who were hungry to take to, take to play a role in the in the war. And uh, Mountbatten tossed them the challenge. They accepted it. Um, uh, Mountbatten was into split-second timing.
3: He'd you, you know, you, you, yet to stumble across that wonderful maxim of war, which is that no plan survives contact right.
4: with the enemy. Uh, and off they went.
1: Uh, there were two attempts to do it. One in July, that had to be called off because of the weather and because the Germans wised up to what was about to happen. And the Germans at that point, in July 1942, thought, well, even the Brits wouldn't be silly enough to try
4: twice. Mm. But they were. So uh, a month later, on the 19th, uh, across the channel they went, under couple of darkness, and the uh, the dawn came up, 6,000 men landed, and six, seven hours later, barely half, under half that number, staggered back across those beaches, which were littered with. Canadian bodies littered with blown up tanks, littered with all kinds of debris of war and got back onto the boats, which themselves were sustaining serious damage, and went home. And the thing was an absolute disaster. Mm. Now, in the in the backwash to that, uh, in the 1990s, um,
3: uh, apropos of, uh, of a book of mine, uh, my publisher paid for me and my wife to go on a beach. Canadian sales it, which we did, All right.
1: and I began to meet, um, uh, and there were still a handful, um, we were still vertical, Canadian
3: servicemen who'd been on that beach, and more importantly their sons and daughters. Hmm. And, and I got a measure of the, uh, of the anger that still existed, and we're talking what, 40 years later? Yeah, years later. yeah, 50 years later, yeah. Yeah, and, and I thought, oh my goodness, there's a book there somewhere. Or at that point, there's a film that mm. But then, as I say, TBS lost the franchise, but the film
1: never happened. I was writing crime fiction, as it turns out, at that point. Um, I got to the end of my, my, my,
4: my spelling, the, the, the crime fiction standard, mm. Books later, and I was desperate to do something different. Uh, and and
0: uh, I came up with a book called Finisterre, which was uncommissioned, so it was a bit of a pun. Right. Uh,
1: my agent was horrified. Because as
0: you know, you get you you any kind of success. Yeah. They just want you to do it again and again. And I said to Ollie, "Listen, I mean, we've got to think outside the box." And the key here is that those seven years of war, the Second
3: World War, was the biggest crime scene ever. Yeah. And it's just full of untold stories. And what I want to do is
4: to. um, to, to wade in and, and plunder that war, if I put it that way, mm. for book after book after
1: book. And he said, well, that's going to be a tough sell. To his great credit, credit he did it. He found a publisher,
3: uh, a wonderful man called Nick Cheatham, who now heads, Head of Zeus. Yes, right. And um, he turned out to be, I don't met him before, but we had lunch, and
1: he turned out to be a, an avid World War II fan. I tell you what, he, he, he'd read, finished there, he really liked it. And we got into one of those, and, and you know, I, I think you'll appreciate this, Paul, one of those typical pu- publishing uh, post-desert conversations when he said, OK, well, you know, I really like this, and we'd like to commission it. Who are we going to run with as the central character?
3: Right, Chris, right. The commander of the U-boat, Stefan Portich. How, how do you fancy that? And I said, well, uh, hang, hang on here, um, Nick. Uh, what I want to do is,
1: don't want to go with a central character. He said, You don't? I said, No. He said, But we we only sell now into offer contracts in terms of series. It's got to be series. I said, Yeah, yeah, no, I understand that. What I want to do is to come up with a series that's now called the Collection incidentally.
3: Yes, I noticed that.
1: French, who crop up from time to time as the series develops, and they shoulder more or less of the narrative as the narrative demands, and um, I want to be able to have the freedom to mix them with real-life figures, so that, you know, the, the Joseph Goebbels, the Winston-Churchills,
4: uh, the, Winston Churchills, the mm-hmm. Montgomery's, the, the FDRs, and Americans.
0: That's really interesting Graham because um, one of the things is it's pretty rare yours is a unique series because it does dot back and forth and you pick those moments and I wondered how much of a plan there was there in, in you know the, they do relate to each other that's the point they're all part of possibly a chronicle of the war if you like well in a sense I mean people uh, are, you know the, the real interest in the series
3: is growing, and you can measure that by the number of uh, unsolicited emails mm, Right, and a lot
1: of these emails would order should I read these books
3: in? Right. And I write back and, and I, I give them a, a, a positive account of what I've just told you. And, and, and I say, so in a sense, these are all standalones. I mean, it helps if you start with Sinister and work through the series, right. the, the order in which they were published. But
2: if, if my formula works, then you should be
1: able to dip into that war, dip into that series at any point that you fancy. So if you fancy the look of the cover of of a uh, last flight to, to Stalingrad or uh, Catastrophe or Raid 42
4: whatever it might
1: be. And, mm. start and then you can work that or forwards. And they say, well, that's a bit different. Um, and, uh, 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 and that's music
0: to my ears, believe me. Yeah, no, and as you say, of course, the other thing is that the characters, they do crop up in different books, but the, as a repertoire company, a repertory company, as you said... <laughs> yeah very good idea that because obviously then it makes it more real they can't possibly have characters who are involved in all these stories without it becoming incredibly fictional um and well you know what i mean though it it would then lose its touch of reality the point is you put the right people in the right place and thinking about that and characters so we've got you've got these ideas you're in these areas i can understand with the blood of others obviously this is something was on your mind for a long time after you spoke to those canadians for instance and um how do you then look at the real characters and the creation of your own characters? Um, be, they, they must have different genesis, but then in a sense, you'd have to get them the same way in order to write them, wouldn't you? That's right. Uh, I mean, in,
1: in terms of, of all my fictional characters, they've got, they've got to um, fill uh, a narrative hole. I, I know the job that Pam that, that Moncrude has
4: to do. He work for MI5. He's got to be a certain kind of guy. I met mm. him a certain kind of guy in that first book, in the stair. I, I fleshed him out in the second book and, and, and
1: thereafter during the series. Uh, and the same pertains, same applies to all the other fictional characters. There's a guy called Werner Neiman, in mm-hmm. the last writer to, to Stalingrad. And I needed to in- invent someone um, uh, to, to stand
4: beside uh, Joseph Goebbels, who who begun to fascinate me. Mm. Uh,
1: was a man of genius. I mean, he was an evil genius, but he was a man yeah. of genius. Yeah. He was way ahead of the game in terms. So-
3: He's a very cynical
0: character, and he has a great sense of humour. Yeah, I've had more more uh, and emails and tweets
1: about me than any other character.
3: Right. Uh,
4: Great.
1: mindful PC here, and then you can begin to take modest fictional liberties with who you think they are. And by this time, I like to tell myself, and I'm, I'm confessing to you here, Paul, that I've done enough of the groundwork um, to feel that I'm not actually
0: trespassing, that right. I have in some
1: strange way met
0: them. I get where you're coming from. It is, but then that that's the whole point about fiction, that when you include real characters, it has to be that way, doesn't it? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm doing a book at the moment um, called Kane, K-L-L-L-E-S-E, which is a, a sort of
3: blockbuster book, and, and it fits within the series. Hmm. It, 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 most of it takes place uh, in and around but I mean, around um, FDR and Roosevelt. Oh, right.
0: This is really interesting because what it does, Graham, is it talks to the kind of story that you bring to us around these issues and how you get into these characters, you know, beyond the point that you could perhaps see some written in a um, historic a history book, sorry, um, which I still believe is a narrative and not not a sort of factual thing. But there are dates and there are events that absolutely happened. I just wonder what you consider your approach to history in that sense to be. Uh, you are looking at behind the headlines, in a sense. You're looking into the story in much, much more depth. Is it a revisionist approach? Is that what you'd call it?
1: Well, I think the trick, if there is a trick, the trick is to, first of all, you've got to master the chronology. You've got to know what happened to who in which order. Mm. So you've got to be on top of 39
3: to to 45. Right. So so all those years, that long curve, complex curve of the war, it,
1: it becomes very familiar territory. But then that becomes a scaffold. On which to hang your fictional characters,
4: hmm. in which to get to know the real guy, and to get,
1: to get to to understand the effect that the war, the developing war, their war, had on them. And then to inter- intermingle the two, to have those freedoms, to, if you take grade 42, which was um, an in depth exploration of the circumstances around the flight of the deputy Fuhrer, Yes. Was asked, in 1941, from Germany to uh, a field near Glasgow. Mm. And he came to try to end the war. Uh, And there are all kinds of of unanswered questions about that that lead in some really really interesting directions. So interesting. And I've read everything I can lay my hands
4: on Mm. Um, in terms of different interpretations of why he may have done it, did Hitler know, what kind of deal did, did, did he come to with the Brits,
1: um, and all, all sorts of stuff. The, the role of MI6, always what uh, really happened in Lisbon, um, and, and and I began to recognise the kind of fictional liberties I could take in that in those shadows that exist around
3: Rudolf Hayes. Mm. Um and uh, I, I I was blessed in a
1: way because Hamoncrees speaks uh, fluent German. We know why if you if
3: you. Yes, if you've read the earlier yes. books, yes, and
1: he's uniquely qualified to. When this guy is, is occupying a cell in the Tower of London, for instance, he, he goes to meetings, mm. and that was a very interesting uh, scene to, to write. Um, uh, it was convenient for the Brits and for Hitler to to to, to, to try and make a case that Hess had, 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 had lost contact with.
2: Yeah, of course,
0: that's the story that's pretty popular. And this is one of the interesting things. As I said, you don't like black and white because no story is black and white. So you get behind these kinds of stories. But it's also the other aspect of it. It's a kind of hidden history. I'm curious about, for instance, the raid on Dieppe, um, the Bethnal Green Tube Disaster, the fact that French soldiers raped German women going into, you know, Germany, At the end of the war, but nobody mentions anything like that. They're just not the popular image. One of the lessons I, I, after I departed from crime fiction, one of the lessons I took with me, Paul, is that I always tried to write crime fiction in what I call the minor key. Right. That came from spending. You know, I went to
1: this. I don't like crime fiction at all. I never read it, etc. So I forced into it by, by a rhyme. Uh, and I thought, well, three books and that's done, I'm done, I'm, I'm through, I'm out <laughs> of here. But, but in fact, I got, I got to like it. And I got to like it because the, my only option in terms of, of how to tackle this, this challenge they'd tossed me, and the challenge was to do a, uh, an Ian Rankin on, on Portsmouth where, where my wife and I were living, um, rather right than Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I spent about three, four weeks in the volume Crime Office. Which is the minor crime office, uh, the big one in, in Pompey, And I got to know a, a bunch of enormously frustrated, fed up detectives. Right. spent uh, most of their they're, they're paid time chasing serial kids who never went to school and spent their, their days getting up, getting
2: in people's faces and, and shoplifting and all the rest of it, jumping mm. the car. And, and I thought, wow, you know, this is not the world of,
4: of serial killers and fast car chasing. This is real life. Mm. And what I'll try and do is put that on the page, which is what I did for 16
1: books. And and that's the phrase minor key. And I've tried to apply it to the story of war collection. I've tried
2: to get in amongst the shadows. I've tried to get in amongst the weeds. Right. Uh,
1: And the way I can do that is through the characters that I've invented because I have total um,
2: uh, discretion as to where they go and what they do. Mm Although it's governed by by
3: uh, the scaffold, the chronology of the war itself. Right. Um, and, and then, I, as I've said before, just now, I put them alongside real characters, and, and they they act as a kind of
2: discipline as well. But but that gives me the kind of scope. You know, this is this is quite subtle stuff, hmm. and one is always under pressure in publishing, even
3: in head of use, which is a dream dream.
1: Right. Publishing
3: the word but, but because we're going to make a living. There's always pressure for, for something called the blockbuster. Now, yeah. if, if any of us knew what a blockbuster was, not just me, yeah, of course, everybody be writing and abuse, anyone, and the same lesson applies
1: to Hollywood. If anyone knew the answer, we'd all be rich. Mm, and of
3: yeah. course, no one
0: does. And so you've got to keep uh, uh, taking risks from the past. Yeah, you know what it is though honestly, I didn't expect the depth when I first read your book, you know, the first one, Finestra, I didn't expect the depth and I've, I've loved the way that you get into the stories because the other thing you do is you go from both sides so we don't get this one-sided picture and of course nothing, again, nothing is one-sided
1: well, that, That's exactly right, so I'm, what I'm trying to do is to tiptoe through the cliches, open the those heavy curtains that history has but, Beginning with Churchill, funnily enough. Who you know, who, who raced to be the, f- the first to write his account of the war. Mm. And, and gradually, you or not even gradually, quickly, you discover that,
3: that, 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 that you know, you're, you're dealing with versions of the war that have been tidied up. Now, Dieppe is a very, very good example of that. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the guys, who, there were fifteen correspondents who crossed the channel and came back the same day. And they, they returned to Portsmouth, not New Haven. The men went back to New Haven. Right. The they went back to, to Portsmouth.
1: They, 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 the, 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 the journalists were taken to the Queen's Hotel in Southview, which we know well. Mm. Um, the following morning, they were served a piece of breakfast, and then they, they, they were addressed by a man from the Ministry of, of Information who confiscated all their notes and said that all their copy had to go through the censor but on no account were they to to, to have the right to to write what they'd really seen Now the problem here was that because of the various accounts of of that, of that, those
4: 24 hours given that the six or seven landing beaches are very disjointed and no one had the the whole picture Mm. so it
1: it was Churchill was coming back from meeting Stalin in Moscow and, and
0: kind of reminded me of, it's almost like Newspeak in George Orwell, you know, rewrite it, completely change the, the meaning and definition of what's actually happened. does. Well, now you mentioned people. I'm just going to say about Hogan. Actually, I'd like to talk a little bit about Hogan and Schultz as we go along. But um, the thing about Hogan is he's a journalist. Um, but he, he, like you just said there, he's got a little bit of the picture. Even though he's there, he only sees a little bit. And of course, then this happens, so it makes it very difficult for him even to grasp that. And you get a sense of that in the book too. Um, but- Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, entirely right. And then news of the disaster speaks out of all the
3: pubs in New Haven where 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 you know the troops that are still standing are drinking and are they they're pretty bitter as well. Yes. They've been told the past by by an They've been told it would be a piece of cake was the mm. great phrase and of course it, it wasn't a piece of cake. And um and this spreads
1: very quickly uh, historically to uh, to Toronto and and as you know there's a passage towards the end of the book
0: And Beaverbrook, there, and the thing about Beaverbrook is, um, you, well, I suppose Murdoch, you know, now when you look at the power of these barons, you know, um, it was incredible. And of course, he was supporting Stalin, wasn't he? it's a curious we talk about these raids and and obviously stalin is pushing for this he wants a second front there's a, a point of ameliorating um stalin but another issue is that they they had the raid on san Nazaire, which is yeah. the german dry dock and it actually achieved something half the men on that raid i think 600 men less than half of the men returned so it's still a, a bloody nightmare but you can actually That's see really an hard. end goal yeah, yeah I, I, Dieppe seems to be just a charge for, a, you know, it serves no purpose. There was no credible outcome from that, other than, you know, smacking the Germans in the nose. Yes, it would be Mountbatten's well, contention, I suspect, that it added to the gravity of nations. And it supported, it lit a fire
1: under national morale. As i said before, it was a very gloomy stage of the war, and people needed backing up. And if you look hard at, at, at his previous history, Mountbatten, I'm talking about mm-hmm. now, uh, in terms of HMS Kelly, which is his first sea-going
4: command. Yeah,
3: right. And he got into all kinds of trouble mm. and lost lines and, and forever getting the boat, you know, damaged and so forth. And in the end, it sunk
1: off creep. and it was converted into, as you know, if you read the book, then you have uh, the Blood Brother of Others. It, it became a, 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 a film that, 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 that became famous. Yes. Um. Uh, uh, and he had the knack of, of of manipulating the headlines. Now that worked with San Javier, and you're absolutely right. 300 people were killed mm. out
4: of 600 people, but it it, 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 it wrecked the the the, uh, the dry dock gates for the remainder of the war. Mm. There was another raid uh, uh, about months later down south, the River Abdullah it one. Which was a catastrophe. The, the, the boats got, got stranded on a,
3: a sandbar at the mouth of the estuary, and they, they didn't even make a landing. And, and, and so by the time the, 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 the app came around, Mount Batten had, had ground to make up. Yes, he so needed he to needed yeah. a big success,
1: and the Canadians were his ticket to the
0: big success. Mm. There's so much in the book. I mean, you say that um, Mountbatten and, of course, Churchill, the first thing they think is how do we spin this a different way? Um, but one of the things is that so then they said, well, this is preparation for D-Day. But, of course, it was also preparation for the Germans because it gave them the heads up on what was coming. That's right. No, that's, that's right. So, you know, always seeing it two ways. I mean, the, the, the comparison in terms of scale between the two landings, that's D-F on the one hand. Yeah. And Piglet on the other, there is no comparison at all.
2: No, and this is Churchill on his way back, as I said, from from Cairo. He, he went from Moscow to Cairo. He wasn't very well, actually, at the time. He, right. He
3: Yes.
0: Right. The invasion, invasion and, you, you know, one of the things that that leads us to, and I'm not being clever here, it's it's in your book, is the thought that um, you have to wonder how much they cared about lives. I mean, the title, The Blood of Others. The whole yeah. point is, it's not them dying on those beaches. And how much do they take into account that human cost? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I know you can't fight a war without sacrifice. But no, no, no. But there's there's, there's, there's worthwhile sacrifice, mm. well planned sacrifice. There's sacrifice that that, that, that that doesn't
4: come down to to massive oversights on your on your own account. Mm. And, and, and there's, there's, there's rank
1: mismanagement. Um, the hazarding of men's lives to no purpose at all. And to my mind, Diet yeah, was the perfect example. And and I, I can only go back to. to to that degree of anger that survived the the decades and the generations that followed in
4: Canada Mm. Um, they were the Canadians before they they, they embarked on the 18th of August
1: 1942 they were addressed by uh, the Canadian gun charger and he promised them it will be a a piece of
0: cake yeah I know but that's the phrase he
1: used
0: if ever there were fateful words
1: yeah ...of August thereafter,
3: year after year after decade, etc. People knew his home address, and it was flooded. You
0: know, the, the
3: postman arrived with
0: armfuls of carefully... Pieces of cake. ...wrapped Canadian ghetto... Yeah. ...with, with fairly terse salutation. No, as you say... Um, ...and it's the squandering of the blood of others that is the focus of that book. Yeah, Absolutely. Talking about Hogan, I mean, first thing is he's a journalist. Naaman's a journalist, you know. Journalists make great spies, I suppose. That's part of it, isn't it? They, they know how to get into a story but still be an outsider, I suppose. That,
2: that's, that's correct. And they, um, by
1: definition, that gives them, um, and this can be a narrative problem in, in wartime, they, they have a freedom that, that mm. denies uh, many other kinds of people, if I can put it that way. Their job is to report, their job is to, is to find the story as it is now. Um, and lastly, they become spies of a kind. Um, the uh, the powers that be do their level best to,
4: to make sure that they're only fed, you know, one version of the story. Mm. Um, and, and I guess that the story, if I can use that word again, on the end, is that um, uh, thanks to the fact that Hogan is Canadian
0: and thanks to the fact that, that you know, he's diligent and he's angry and, and, and all that, 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 the, that the real story can can creep out. Yeah. One of the other things you do in these books that that is also not true necessarily of war stories per se is um the way you round the character. So you, you mentioned his love life and you mentioned his religious background and the very interesting aspects that make this character. So we try to understand more how he reacts when he gets in these situations. Um And you round uh, Schultz as well, actually, on the other side. But just one question about Hogan and it's his faith. I wonder how much you, it was to do with his faith, obviously, and how he is as a character. But I wonder if you were also posing that question just generally about where God sits in
3: all this. I, very good question, Paul. I, I, I think the answer is that, that I,
1: I, I, I wanted to make Hogan special.
3: I
4: right. wanted to make him unusual. Hmm. I wanted, above all, to remove him from, from the world of stereotypes. He's not
1: hard-drinking, hard-living, journal um, uh,
0: uh, No he's not you know, bed every night with a Yeah woman, et cetera, et cetera. This is a man of principle
1: This is a man who's been brought up a certain way He come from a large family His mother is unforgiving His face is unforgiving um, He believes totally in, 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 in his mission as a, a journalist and he writes like a dream mm. he,
4: he, uh,
1: and he believes in it He really does. Now that, that gives him from my point of view that instantly Removes him from the world of the stereotypical, the the world of the central casting, um, write it the way you see it. Uh, uh, And it makes him an interesting proposition because I, as a writer, have to spend three, four hundred pages in the company of this guy. And I have to, first of all, believe him on the page and make him credible as far as readers are concerned. And I I don't know about you, but I can can tell as a reader within.
3: Two, three pages whether, whether i'm
1: gonna buy this character whether yes absolutely it, I often, like, believe it. yeah and that has to do
3: with the roundedness
1: of the characters mm. and the quirkier they are the more different they are the more distinctive they are the
0: better a story works because you believe it yes looking at schultz then i mean i wonder do you get lots of people who say schultz is an evil character because I, I don't tend to look at him that way. I mean, the whole point about this is that you have to have some understanding of the other side or it makes no sense. And it, it has to make sense. I mean, OK, yes, given the paranoia and the, the lunacy at the top, you know, but still, we don't want to dislike Schultz as a character because we have to. He's one side of the military operation on the German side. He's really important. He's half the story, effectively. You do clever things. You give him a, a love life. You've put O'Deal in his life. Um, you know he, we have the mafia after him, which is something else that comes into the book so there are there are reasons why you could get a sense of this character but i I wonder whether i mean i I just think he's very intelligent. I don't find him a repulsive character in a sense. I suppose what I'm trying to get at here is that if you made him just a repulsive character, even though people will naturally take against him. That, that wouldn't work as a storytelling, would it? It wouldn't work That's as a character. Right. I, 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 Sorry, that was long-winded. That, that comes, comes from the, uh, uh, the part of the wood that says all Nazis are bad. You know? and, yeah. That is just not true. So what did I want to do? I wanted to invent someone who had a violent past, who'd been in, uh, uh, in, in the early stages
1: of the rise of Hitler, who'd worn a brown shirt, who'd been in the essay, which the should who'd done his fair share of brawling and, and trying to beat up and in some cases kill communists on the street. I wanted all that, but I wanted as well a thinking.
2: Uh, and where would that take him in, in real life? That would take him um, to the out there. There were basically two, in, uh, two two sources of military intelligence as the war
1: developed and as the 30s developed. One was uh, overseen and directed by a fascinating character called... Uh, Amal Canaris. Mm. And if you're looking for the good German, for the thinking German, for the opaque German, for the German who's very difficult to read, for the German who speaks five languages and, and ghosts his way uh, you, you know, across Europe before the war starts mm-hmm. at Canaris. Uh, Schultz works uh, in the, uh, the The other uh, agency was the uh, Sickerheimsfeet, Mm. Which, which, was, which was the SD, which is part of the
4: SS organization, which was led by Hitler. This is Hitler's Praetorian Guard, grows into a huge organization, and there's lots of turf war mm. between uh, the two bodies, the Abwehr and the SS. And it's a battle that, in the end, is won by Hitler. By the end of the war, Canaris comes to a very sticky end. Yeah. Um, and next, next year's book, well, I was so fascinated by Canaris. And this goes, does relate back to your question about Schultz. That, uh, he plays a huge part in the book to come next year, which is called The Right. And, right. um, and, 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 I
1: again go through the, all the research stages of trying to read as much as I care about him, etc., inside under his skin. And he has a fascinating character. And the key parts of that next book to come are the exchanges between Moncrief, who speaks good German, and,
3: um, Canaris, uh, who speaks good English. Yes, right. uh, And the, the book revolves around something uh, called operation, which is a German operation, to uh, plunge down through Spain in 1940, the time going to 1940, early months of
0: 1941, and kick the bridge off the rock of Gibraltar. Yeah, right, right. I'm, I'm vaguely aware of it as an operation. an yeah. episode of the war about which I knew nothing mm. at that's really interesting in in the way it brings in this idea of um we again people make assumptions that they know the second world war and they know the period and sometimes that's just skirting detail it's detail that's a sort of overview because for instance one of the things you make clear in your book is about what it's like in france the difference between the Abfair and the sd and the um the Gest- uh, Gestapo, and they don't all come in. And it's not just one body that sits there with a the power and exerts that. The fighting internally in the organizations is not just about the Germans. If you look at Stalin, it also applies to the internal structure with Russia. And another sense we get in the book, of course, is that there's combined operations, but they're also the Secret Service in Britain who are operating, not against each other necessarily all the time, but sometimes they are. There's a whole war going on in the background, in a sense, between these organisations, in theory, on the same side. Uh, Paul, you couldn't be more right. And, and uh, I, I, this, this but I think it's my
1: responsibility, my duty as a, as a writer, if I'm serious about all this stuff. Uh, you know, I'm,
3: I'm now generating the 10th, writing the 10th book of the series. So right. Talking about more than a million words. Uh, and, and to do that, I've got to resist.
1: Easy temptation, and dare I say, that a a lot of
3: writers have have succumbed to it. A lot of
1: writers haven't, but but to take the easy fictional Mm. shortcut and try and
0: pretend that everything was simpler than it actually was, because the real fictional fascination is in the small print, and that's where the real drama lies. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. Is it? um, I I was going to say keeping emotion out of it. That's not quite fair. Are you in? Sometimes are you angry when you write these novels because of their relation to reality? Um, but of course, it has to come across very coolly in the fiction. The characters, the story, has to speak for itself in that sense. Well, I think very, it would be very, be very difficult Paul, to to write, to write a story like
4: the Battle of having done all the research. Mm. Uh, and here, here's an example of what I'm trying to say. I completed the first draft, uh, and, and this
1: is a, a kind of general pattern with that. Uh, it's at that stage, I mean, I've been to it to, 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 yeah, before, and you can do loads and loads of geographical research on the internet, as you know. Mm. So
4: with, with the, with the,
1: first, the first draft there in front of me, hanging on the screen, in hard copy, we then took the ferry from New, New Haven and spent a week pacing the beaches in Dieppe. And mm. within May, June, uh, the weather was awful, it was very grey, Um, And we ended up on Blue Beach, which is the beach that features heavily in the book. Right, yes. A lot of the killing happened. And we arrived in in mid morning, and there was no one on the beach. And it was high tide, and um, all the beaches along that that, that coast are very distinct.
3: And they're they're covered in what the French call galets, G A L E T S. And and they're they're, they're grey pebbles Mm. spawned around the sides of the cricket ball and the uh, the rest of it like the big ones Um, and and, and I went swimming I I got my baby and uh, I
1: went swimming and I wanted to try and put myself in the heads of those young guys Uh, coming in uh, uh, much earlier uh, on that door uh, and were going to uh, uh, run down the ramp make their way with 80 pounds of of stuff on their
4: back out of the sea wall the Germans have had a lot of time
1: to think all this through and they have and the machine guns and the mortars and everything else. Sniper, very clever. I and mean, there was barely a patch of that bitch that, that wasn't covered by German. Right.
0: do that because I think the poignancy of this story comes across and it makes me angry I mean as a reader I wasn't expecting you to give me a different answer in all truth you know um, but but you mentioned the complexity I mean we are dealing with such complexities here one of the things that, that is the background to the book is of course the ribbentrop Pact um, so we, one minute the Germans absolutely hate communism and communists and having a pact with them then that's breaking down because of various reasons we know when the war starts and then we're on the same side as Stalin and now we're and it's all about rewriting the way things are after the event happens the security services and certain people start looking at the Canadians thinking well now are they a danger now because now this has happened you know it goes to questions of empire and what you know the difference between Britain and Canada and the men who are involved in this operation so they become distrusted for their heroism that's a
3: lot of questions really sorry yes River
1: was, was, a, was a was a very interesting character because I'm much hated in the in the upper reaches of of, of, of the Nazi dung heap. You know, along the the Wilhelmstrasse, very few people had a good word to say for Ribbentrop because he he was he was uh, he the ex champagne salesman. He was arrogant. He was a fool. Mm. He made a fool of himself as an ambassador in London. And he had, but he had the ear as a Fuhrer, and he had the ear of the Fuhrer because he travelled. Well, in the sense that you know he was multilingual, which is very rare in Germany uh, um, amongst
0: the chieftains. Really. Yes, right. Um, and and his
1: negotiation, his his starting of a chance of of, of turning the war on his head uh, in terms of the pact, the non aggression pact, was that a stroke of genius? I mean, Hitler had no intention at all of keeping his word, mm. uh, and and the Brits warned. Stalin, but that would be the case. And as the, in early 1941, as the German armies began to mass on the
3: Russian border, they they told him time and time again through various channels, Stalin, that he was facing an invasion. And Stalin, of all people, was the world's most suspicious guy. Yes.
0: He didn't believe him. Didn't, no, he didn't um, trust his own intelligence at all, did he? No, he didn't. He didn't. Uh, and
1: uh, uh, you, you know, you could, you could could make out a case that he spilled countless, countless gallons of the blood of of others in in Russian terms because he got it so wrong. Um, Going back to empire, one of the really interesting fault lines that that lies across the latter years of the war, from the entry of the, of the, the Americans in 1941, at the end of 1941 onwards, is the issue of empire. And the Americans, as you know,
3: Yes, yes.
0: To join the of after yeah, no, it's, it's another thing that's sort of been rewritten.
1: Right.
0: and there's another profound corruption in the book which is the way that the Germans dealt with um, the French Gestapo or what, they, what became the French Gestapo um, and this character Chamberlain or yeah. Henri uh, Lefonte um, yeah. And it is, you know, despite the image, again, which is the Nazis were efficient and there's all sorts of talk about that kind of thing. It's all mired in this vile corruption, this collection of the worst people getting together to do the worst things, essentially,
3: isn't it? Well, yeah, that's right. It was quite a clever move by the Germans. If there's one bunch of people that
0: understood the senior underbelly of Paris,
1: it was Chamberlain Ch- and, uh, uh, and, and so they hooked up with him to their mutual advantage i mean they gave him everything he wanted uh, they gave him the big house they gave him the big car they uh, they gave him the, the, the kind of budget the kind of earning opportunities that, the, 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 the lifestyle he wanted um and the guy was a gangster anyway and, and so you, you have a situation where one
0: it's very true I mean I must admit I, you know when I think about it when you talk about somebody like Putin today I just think you're talking about the world's biggest gangster oh, absolutely. you know that That's that's one of those things. Be careful what you wish for with Putin, isn't it? Because we really don't know what so backs that up. one at. central commanding authority at the moment just,
3: just with
1: Putin. Mm. So how long is that going to – how long
3: will he survive? Yeah, yeah. Okay,
0: back to the book. Um, and just thinking that um, – I mean, another thing that was cropped up in um, your last book, actually – was about the difference between the Americans and the Brits, and getting a sense of what the Americans wanted after the war and what the Brits wanted after the war, and even the Germans wanting their little say. I mean, it seems almost bizarre, even knowing it was coming to an end. You still had Germans who wanted to have a say in the way it would go afterwards. Uh, absolutely, yes. There's a book called uh, Catastrophe, yes, which deals with
3: the clo- closing, the closing months of the war and and the bids. That, that, you
1: know that. Various highly placed Nazis scrambling to do some kind of private deal with the Allies, because they they know the game's up. They know that the the, the, the Fury's on its last legs. They they know that the Allies, the Americans, the Russians, the Russians above all, and the Brits have, have, uh, to be cruel, have Germany by the nuts. Mm -hmm. And it's it's go-ending tears. And again, I knew nothing about the bid to broker a separate piece and for a senior assessed general
3: in northern Italy to to surrender an entire army. Yeah, right. To baby skin, basically. uh, So that's another great
1: example of of a little piece of, of wool sticking out of that scheme of wool.
0: Absolutely. One last, or two questions just to finish off. One is that the the novel involves so much layering. Um, The story is so complex. I think we've given an indication to people of that and your series in general. And I just wonder um, does it come together naturally that way? (laughs) That's a very interesting question. Quite a lot hangs, I'm going to answer this quite a lot hangs on the next book I read
1: deliver for publication in 2025 and that's the one I'm working on at the moment that's the one that's got to be the blockbuster and in answer to your question for the first time in my life I sat down and I wrote a long
3: um, 34 page 17,000 word synopsis I've never done that before right. I, I did it primarily I think probably from my benefit.
1: Um, sent it off to Nick um, my editor Greg I've Greg so heard this was two months ago. I've heard nothing, and, and I'm very glad I've heard nothing because I, I started with a character. I started with the first page, and then half a the second page. It works beautifully. Right. I'm. Um, I'm. I'm I, I, I've got the, the, what I call the magic M. That's a point of momentum, and the whole thing takes over. And I'm back in the world that I know ever so ever so familiar. And that is to follow my fictional run and see where it leads. So my 17,000 word uh, synopsis lies now, unconsulted, in my closed
3: drawer, and I'll just go where my instincts can Right. That's really interesting, yes. <laughs> it makes
0: me sound quite reckless. No, 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 no. Well, no, I, I don't think, but I think there's an energy as well that you want to read in a book. You know, you talked about pace and turning the page, the things that keep people going. You can have a straightforward war yeah. story, you can have one that's got lots of layers, but it still has to have this energy going with it. And I think you keep yeah. that. You you keep know, that energy. That's what, that's what any reader will pick up. That's mm. what I have to read to pick up. I want to know that the writer's having a good time.
2: Yeah. The writer's having a good time and, and the good
1: day after good day after good day. Then it shows in the post. And the characters dance through the narrative, and, yeah. and the, the dialogue sequences, in which there are a lot, really work, and they really push the narrative to the bottom and they deepen our understanding of, 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 of successive characters in the way that, that the narrative is headed.
4: And, mm. and all the kind of
1: circumstantial traps that might lie, and you know, stuff we
0: call plot. really.
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's really interesting. I love it.
0: No, it is. And um, we have a rough idea now. You've told us what's coming next. One last question then, um, and I mean it this time, and thank you, you've been very generous with your time. But oh. um, how about a recommendation for a book? And I don't care what it is, you know, it doesn't have to be a crime novel, it doesn't have to be a spy novel or a war story. Something you've read recently that you would recommend. One of the things I have to do as part of this professional culture, which you are a right, is, is, to, is to choose five wartime novels. That's ah, right. Okay. One of those novels is a novel that I've never come across before, so I've never read it. And it, it's a novel called The Kindly One by Robert
1: Midtown And I ordered it through Amazon. It cost me 83p. It arrived. And to my horror, it was 800 pages long. <laughs> and I sat down and
4: it just sucked me. It right, sucked that's me interesting. Because the guy, it's basically about a. Uh, I won't bore
1: you with the plot, but it's a seen through the eyes of a, of a German that has a gift
2: administration appointed mm-hmm. to check up on, on on the black holes, if I can put it that way, the developers as the, as the third line gets deeper and deeper into the, right. the, the darkness of the Second World War. And i have never read l-
1: writing quite as graphic uh, as this before, and I couldn't put it down. And, really? and I, I counsel anyone with an informed or uninformed uh, interest in the Second World War to get hold of him. Um, I, I, I learned an enormous amount about what's possible on the page from that man. Right. He's a, a partly American,
3: partly French. It was mm-hmm. originally published, uh, um, sorry, not published, written in French, um, uh, and then translated into
2: English. Um, it has the party ones in my life, the worst title I've
1: ever come across in my life. Hmm. In French is the Bienveillant, which, which sits more happily on the front cover. But that doesn't matter because read the first page, second page, third page, you're there, you know,
0: something is doing it for you. Right, I'm going to put that on the programme notes. I think. No, 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 no that's fine. I mean, I'll put this on the program notes. I think people do like the idea of finding out, you know, what interests writers, but also discovering new things, so that's always a good thing. I think Jonathan Little is um, Robert Little's son, the spy writer.
1: Uh, L-I-T-T-E-L.
0: Yeah. But, uh, but no, I'll, I'll put that on the program notes. Graham, you've been very generous, as I said. Thank you very much. Not
3: at all.
0: So once again apologies for the sound quality there, it was entirely down to my technical side uh, which isn't very good as you can tell. But basically um, the recorder that was set up to work from the telephone didn't work and so it was a remote device as I said, a a tablet that picked it up. Anyway I'm so glad that we did get to present you with the interview because I think you'll agree that it's a fascinating chat with uh, Graham Hurley there. The Blood of Others and all the titles in the Spoils of War series are available from good book outlets. If you want to order it from us, you can get it by clicking the link on the program notes, and that will take you to bookshop.org. And a publisher of this fantastic series is Head of Zeus. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and subscribe with your favorite provider. And I'll be back very shortly with another interview. But for now, bye, and thank you very much for listening.